0: Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Dr. Thomas Pinio, a physician who has devoted his career to the world of hospital medicine and is one of the founding members of the Hospitalist Program at UPMC in Harrisburg. As someone who works exclusively in a hospital every single day, few people can offer insights On the nature of the COVID 19 pandemic here in central Pennsylvania, like Tom can. In addition to discussing what it's like to be on the front lines in the fight against the novel coronavirus, Tom and I also discuss in detail the inequalities of our healthcare system and how they are inextricably intertwined with the inequalities of our economy. Tom also offers thought provoking insights on what life will be like. In the post-COVID world, assuming there truly is such a thing, which is a timely issue because of what has been happening in Wisconsin. As I mentioned in the introduction to one of our earlier podcasts, the Supreme Court recently decided that Wisconsin voters should not have their absentee ballot deadline extended during the pandemic. And as a result, The GOP's initiative to have people congregate at the polls on election day was allowed to move forward. This was a monumental decision because the thinking was that if the conservative Supreme Court justice who was up for re-election were to win, then he would be the tie-breaking vote in a case that would allow 240,000 voters to be wiped off the Wisconsin voter rolls going into the 2020 general election. Surprisingly, Democratic Supreme Court candidate Joe Karofsky pulled off the upset, which in all likelihood now will preclude those 240,000 voters from being erased from the voter rolls. Nevertheless, the GOP's decision to allow citizens to congregate at the polls in the midst of a pandemic reflects the profound risk that politicians are willing to expose their constituents to in order to maintain power. In this podcast, you'll hear Tom urge society to adapt its lifestyle to the virus rather than the other way around. As he says, to conduct ourselves otherwise would be to risk the lives of all Americans, and particularly healthcare workers, who long for a world that views a contagion for the real risk it poses and acts accordingly to mitigate its reach. Tom's holistic view of the healthcare system is shrewd and candid. He has clearly been thinking deeply about his profession and his role within the healthcare field. We should be counting our blessings that people like Dr. Pinio are now the guardians of the gate during this unprecedented time. Without further ado, I bring you our next true neighbor, Dr. Thomas Pinio. All right. i'm here with dr tom pinio tom thanks for coming on the podcast
1: it's my pleasure tom it's really uh, um, enjoyable to get together and talk to people about things that are important and certainly healthcare is one of those things that has been an important part of my life and i think it's an important part of just about everybody's life
0: especially right now uh, that couldn't be more true um, you know what i find really cool about how we got to know one, one another. It's uh, the beauty of serendipity in politics. We did a, an event at the cornerstone coffee house in camp Hill on a Saturday morning, weren't sure how many people were, were going to come and you and your wife came, did an event. And now, you know, when I was thinking about who to reach out to, who's a subject matter expert on the front lines of this, your name was the first that came to mind. So just kind of shows the, uh, the beauty of, of politics.
1: Yeah, I, um, I couldn't agree more. I think that, um, you know, getting together at Cornerstone Coffee Shop in particular, but coffee shops in general, uh, probably be surprising to count the number of important decisions that were made over a cup of coffee over the course of history. I think it's nice that our political environment is able to um, include informal places uh, gathering places where people can get together and and talk about the world and how to make it a better place.
0: Absolutely. Um, so I'm excited to talk with you. I, you're uh, right in the thick of things right now, but before we jump into it, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to pursue a path in medicine?
1: Sure. So I have been a physician now for 20 years practicing. I got out of my residency in the year 2000 and for the first 10 years of my practice I was a family practitioner and in that time I did all the things that a rural family doctor would do including hospital medicine, office medicine, sports medicine, school physicals, nursing home care, um, and a variety of different um, administrative functions within our local hospital. Uh, It was a great practice. I had lots of independence and lots of wonderful people that uh, I was very happy to call my patients. And of course, many associates that mentored me and supported me in my early years. And then later on, I was able to mentor in return. In 2012, through um, a series of complex Uh, changes both in the world and perhaps some in my heart, I decided to go full-time into hospital medicine. And hospital medicine is where a physician focuses purely on the care of the patients that are in the hospital. So much like an emergency room doctor would take care of patients in the emergency room, um, when patients are too, too sick to go home from the emergency room, they tend to stay in the hospital, and that's where the hospitalist spends their time. And so since 2012, that's what I've been doing, and I'm currently uh, working as the medical director and um, part of the hospitalist leader leadership team at Community Osteopathic, uh, which is part of the, the UPMC Pinnacle Network.
0: The role of a hospitalist, um, based on what I, what I read, is a relatively new position in medicine. It dates back to only 1996. Um, what is your day-to-day responsibilities? What do they look like, and how have they evolved since 2012 when you first took the position?
1: Well, that's, um, that's a really interesting question. You know, the late 90s, people were just beginning to banter around this word hospitalist, and um, there's a gentleman who's been credited with the creation of that word by the name of Robert um, Wachtel, and he's currently leading a hospitalist program in uh, UCSF out in San Francisco, California. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting him very briefly at a national conference and he's a just a fantastic guy, very down-to-earth, very smart. Um, he ha- is a general internist and, um, and the field has taken off in ways that nobody ever would have predicted. I think it was the right um, change in medicine happening at the right time. And for the right reasons. It was becoming very clear that physicians in general were increasingly having a hard time um, working both out of the office and the hospital and delivering excellent care. And it was really taking a toll on the doctors who were trying to do that. So The life that we were living was one that was really not sustainable we did it we did it for a long time but like i said it took its toll so it was pretty normal for us to go you know days without a good night's rest and and uh weekends you know that were 48 hours and continual kind of in and out of the hospital trying to get home trying to get some food and just trying to make um uh, make meet our meet our own needs and uh, the needs of our families um so once the hospitalist role came along what we did is we we basically split teams and we said to the one team you guys stay in the office and the other team you stay in the hospital and let's see if we can make a better life for everybody. Um I think that that has been achieved in spades. It's certainly not perfect. We have the the Uh, The problem, of course, that people don't see their family doctor when they come into the hospital. They have to meet somebody new, and that's always a point of some fear and some um, getting to know you. But um, we try to overcome that with, you know, by being good at what we do and being transparent um, and being honest and supportive um, and treating our patients with compassion as they go through some very difficult times. So in the hospital, you can imagine people are going through some of the hardest times of their lives um, without exception. And we take care of a variety of different ailments, um, and we do try to help people, you know, meet them where they are and help them to get to a better place. And hopefully when they leave the hospital that they're able to be independent and take care of their, uh, their health care on their own and and, uh, and do a good job with it.
0: That's especially true right now where folks are coming to the hospital in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic. Um, there have been a number of reports in the past week that kind of showed different potential timelines for when maybe the government first knew about the coronavirus and, uh, and when the country as a whole really was on high alert that this could be coming down the pipeline. But obviously, a lot of that information was confined to those in positions of influence and and politicians from your standpoint, what was the timeline like in terms of when you first learned that this was a real serious issue and what was the response like at the hospital?
1: Well, so one of the things about medicine is that obviously the pandemic, this is the first time that anybody who is alive has been through anything of this magnitude. So, I. I want to be clear that you know United States medicine has not, um, at least those who are living, have not lived through something of this magnitude. And we don't have a readily accessible playbook as to how best to handle this. So coronavirus is a new, is a, it's actually an, an old virus, but COVID-19 is a new version, a new mutation And it's got its own unique qualities and its own um, unique effects that um, challenge us to try to know how best to manage it. The question that you asked is an extremely good one and somewhat complex. I think it's relevant to add a little bit of historical context. Coronavirus um, epidemics have happened before. in 2003, there was the SARS outbreak, and I believe it was 2012 was the MERS outbreak, and both of those were coronavirus. Now the United States, while we might have heard about it on the news, none of us had to experience it firsthand because we didn't see it much. So I think that in our naivety, we were watching COVID-19 happen elsewhere around the world And it was that naivety that said, it won't happen to us. And I think if anybody has ever faced down a really serious problem, one of the first coping strategies that they deploy is denial. And denial results in inaction. And as I look around at the world and at our country in the United States, I think that there was a very gradual awakening to the fact that this problem was coming to us and it was going to be a serious problem. And it clearly took some time for that to sink in. You know, how much time, you know, we were watching it happen in China in December. um, We started to get reports that it was coming our way early February. And you know, by March, I think we all know what happened next, but obviously life has changed considerably uh, for everybody in the United States, regardless of where you live, uh, over the past two to three weeks.
0: No, it's, um, we've inherited a different world. And your point about, um, too often in history, we don't act until it's almost too late. There's a Churchill line that I like to use where he said that mankind often doesn't respond to a crisis until they hear the jarring gong of self-preservation. And that seems to have struck very loud, um, about a month ago. And so obviously now we're in the, uh, the depths of this pandemic with more time to go, but what have the past few weeks been like for you? Walk us through uh, what you see on a day-to-day basis in the hospital.
1: So everybody's experience with COVID is different. People in South Central PA, which is where our hospital um, is located, um, are having a lot of time to prepare and a relatively low level of coronavirus activity, comparatively speaking. Now when I say comparatively speaking put it up against what's happening in New York City or even Philadelphia. um, The number of cases in Dauphin County are in the two to three hundred range. The number of cases in Philadelphia are in about the seven thousand range. so you can, you can see that you know while we are definitely seeing COVID, we're not seeing numbers nearly uh, at the level that are being seen elsewhere. So I can tell you over the last three weeks, every, everything we're doing in medicine that doesn't have anything to do with COVID has been put on hold. And we've redirected all of that energy into COVID or COVID related activity. And now it'll be interesting in three years when this is hopefully in our rearview mirror to look back and say, okay, this is what we did well, this is what we didn't do so well. Um, but truly, one of the realities for us right now is that out of concern of spreading the virus, we've been we've become extremely cautious so most offices have closed or scaled back markedly elective procedures elective surgeries anything that can be put on hold has been put on hold and we've redirected those resources to the care of hospitalized covid patients fortunately we've not seen um, a massive influx of patients Now I think that's partially due to the fact that in central Pennsylvania in particular people really got the message and they really took it to heart and they really followed the requirements of social distancing. Um, That plus the fact that, you know, let's be honest, in south central PA we don't have the same kind of population density that we have in New York City or, you know, Manhattan in particular. so you know, we just live farther away from each other. And as a result, coronavirus is not spreading as much um, in our area. So that's good.
0: Is there anything that the hospital is doing since there is a lower number of patients in our area to assist other hospitals? Or is that premature at this point because we still don't know when there could be a, a massive uptick in the number of cases?
1: Our hospital uh, leadership has been in communication with the other hospitals in our region to uh, talk about resources, to reallocate resources, um, and naturally has been working with us, uh, uh, with Governor Wolf, uh, providing them or him with an inventory of our supplies and, um, and certainly making those things available on a larger scale should they need to be redirected to other markets. You know, one of the things that is so uncertain about our situation is we don't know what's coming. So on the one hand, we'd all love to take all of our medical resources and, and push them to the, to the latest hotspot of COVID activity. But the reality is, is that if we do that, there's likely going to be a number of our healthcare workers that become ill and then would not be available to care for a future um, influx of COVID cases in our region. So it's, it's really difficult to know how to redirect resources, and what we've decided to do is play it close to the chest and, and be ready and put the infrastructure in place that we need should a massive influx of COVID cases come um, and do our very best to be ready for whatever uh, that might look like.
0: You can't predict, you can only prepare, sounds like the mantra at this point.
1: Yeah, uh, we started probably about four weeks ago, and we were looking at a very grim prediction, uh, something that was going to eclipse our capacity to manage it. And uh, and I'm not just speaking locally, but you know, statewide and nationwide. Um, and we took those predictions to heart, and I think the whole country has taken it to heart. And as a result, I think we're seeing a significant slowdown in the number of new COVID cases out there.
0: What's the um, atmosphere been like at the hospital? I'm sure, you know, I've even experienced this just from a political standpoint. In talking to people a month ago, I, I sensed almost a, a sense of disorientation. People were very uh, there was a profound feeling of uncertainty. Um, conversations were very difficult to have. You know, you're worried about your your kids, your job. Um, people don't know what is coming. Uh, I've noticed that changing a little bit. We're kind of acclimating ourselves to this new world, even though the numbers are continuing to grow, um, albeit at a slower rate than they were just a week ago. But what's it been like at the hospital, you know, from the initial response to where you are right now?
1: So this is something that has evolved. And in the beginning, I think there was a lot of fear. And we didn't know it was coming. We saw the news reports out of places like Italy. And of course, we were aware of Wuhan. But um, I think there was something about Italy that just felt more like us. And if it could happen there, it could happen here. And it just felt um, closer to home. And we were seeing the images not only of patients Succumbing to this terrible virus, but also of healthcare workers becoming ill, and um, so that is the is the sort of thing that makes us all, um, you know, become afraid. And as time went on, we really dug in, and we decided this is not something we can take lightly. We've got to put all of our resources towards this. Problem, and we're gonna do our very best to create an environment that we're gonna be able to be successful and be able to succeed, um, not only in helping our patients um, get through this, but making sure that our healthcare workers stay safe. Um, I think that we've done a very good job of that. We've certainly taken care of many COVID patients in our system. And, you know, I just wanna reassure our listeners that COVID is not an unbeatable foe. Granted, when you acquire COVID, it stings and it's not something that anybody should take lightly, but it has weakness and that is it's relatively easy to kill it. If you use the right antiseptic, if you use proper personal protective equipment, you probably will not contract this virus Um, And I can speak with now several weeks of experience and direct contact with other COVID patients alongside of many other healthcare workers who are doing the exact same thing. Um, We are careful. We are aware of what we are doing. When we walk into a COVID room, we think for just two seconds, do I have all of my personal protective equipment in place? The other area that Causes anxiety, and this is really a palpable thing. Was that we all have families, and we've got to go home to them. Um, that's that was a that is a tough reality for healthcare workers. That is a that's a tough source of anxiety. On the one hand, our families are all sheltering in place and and uh, abiding by all the principles. They're out there, but yet here's the, all the healthcare workers breaking all the rules. A, they're going to work. B, they're hanging out with COVID patients, <laughs> and then C, they're coming home. And so, you know, if you really want to clear out a grocery store, come come to the grocery store in your scrubs. And uh, that's that's a joke, but
0: <laughs> no, I mean, it would probably work. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's uh, so? What was the conversation like with your family when? it really set in that you would be on the front lines of this response. What kind of uh, approach and conversation did you have?
1: That's, that is probably you'll have, if you had 50 healthcare workers, you'd probably have 50 different answers to that question. Um, One of the things that I would bring to this is that while COVID is something new and unique, um the 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 focus and dedication that i bring to medicine is nothing new and my family understood that and has always understood that and while covid is our latest foe it is f- hardly the first and will certainly not be the last potentially dangerous microbe that we encounter in a hospital so I would definitely agree that COVID carries with it a kind of risk that's unique, but, you know, tuberculosis is in hospitals. Um, MRSA is something that used to be new and scary and now is completely commonplace, and we're not afraid of it anymore. We just live with it. Uh, And there are many other uh, particularly multi-drug resistant organisms that we've been uh, living with. And working with for years so I think on some level you know I don't know how much of that my family gets but I think on on a certain superficial level they understand that this is the job I do and and I need to go do it and and if I were to to, to not do it um, none of us would feel good about that so it's it's a team sport you know, it's when I go to work, my whole family's coming to work with me on in, in a in um, in an important way.
0: Tom, I know we've you and I have had a few conversations over the past several months about the healthcare system as a whole, and obviously that was before the pandemic descended upon us. But what has this ordeal revealed to you about the healthcare system?
1: Our healthcare system is fantastic in some ways. And those ways are that if you have if you are an individual our healthcare system will give that individual the best odds of any healthcare system in the world of solving the problem that they have. One of the ways that our healthcare system has traditionally been weak is the way that it cares for the whole system, the whole community. It's very good at taking care of one patient at a time. But where we get weak and we start to see problems and cracks in the foundation are when we look at the health of societies, of communities, of urban centers, um, of you know different kinds of healthcare outcomes happening in one state versus another, um, it's it's really astounding how little homogeneity there is in terms of healthcare outcomes when you look across the country. So clearly, one of the problems with the American psyche is this profound sense of independence. And the reason I say that's a problem is because it has a downside. And the downside is you don't have a collective consciousness that allows for, let's say, a single unifying vision um, to prevail when that vision maybe is at odds with the needs of the individual. And so I think that when we get into this COVID epidemic, clearly the only way for us to beat it is to work in unison. We as an entire country have to, um, we have to stay home. We have to wash our hands. We have to, you know, wear personal protective equipment. Now we're all wearing masks. You know, if we collectively do this, we can stop this virus dead in its tracks. But if we continue to focus as individuals, what's the best way for me to get healthy? Um, I'm probably going to contract it because the next person that's, you know, five feet away from me um, might have the virus and I might get it from them. So, and I think to take that question a little bit further, there is this thing called social determinants of health. And one of the sad realities that seems to be coming out is the different experience that people of color are having with COVID as compared to, um, to, to white individuals or Caucasian individuals. Um, so the question is gonna naturally have to work its way through, why is that happening? What are the differences? Well, one of the many realities for um, disadvantaged groups or the social determinants of health is that there's more diabetes in these disadvantaged groups. There's more obesity. There's more smoking. There's more high blood pressure. Um, There's more financial insecurity. There's more housing insecurity. When you put all of those little things together, they add up. And at the end of the day, that individual is much more prone to the effects of any singular insult. So in this case it's COVID and when folks live close to each other they're more likely to contract it and once they do contract it when you pile on these social determinants of health they're more likely to have ill effects because of it. And so when we look back on this three years from now and we've got all the data and we can look at all the sociologic information and we can we can break this down by race and gender and sexual orientation and, and religion and so forth. I think we're going to find that uh, a lot of the burden of this disease is, is borne by people who are more disadvantaged in our society.
0: I think you're exactly right, Tom. And I've even read some statistics on this myself where, In Louisiana, for example, which is home now to the fourth highest total number of cases in the country, 70% of those are African Americans. Uh, 40% of the death total in Michigan is African American. 80% of those from Detroit. Um, the same is true in Chicago. That makes up a disproportionate uh, percentage of the total cases in Illinois. And so your insights there are borne out by the data as we know it right now. Um, if you could, You know, assuming you know we get out of this and we are looking forward to a policy approach that reflects those disparities. From your perspective, from someone who's in the healthcare system now, how do we? You know, uh, obviously financial considerations are one thing, and creating a more fair economy is is a question we have to tackle as well. But from a purely healthcare standpoint, what are some ways we can change uh, the system as it existed, um, even just a month ago, and fix some of those inequalities?
1: Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. You know, one of the ways that you asked that question was to say, what are the distinct healthcare issues? And one of the things I would say is that there's no way to divide healthcare from economics. There's no way to divide economics from um, a person's uh, health outcomes. Um, it, there's no way to divide the social determinants of health, joblessness, housing insecurity, food insecurity. It is all part and parcel. So if we want to have a healthier nation, we've got to have a basic availability of housing, of clothing, of uh, food. And, and those are the foundational elements of hope, of uh, of independence of of access to you know a healthcare system you know we we put a lot of time in our political discourse talking about the importance of a national healthcare system you know i i think that access to healthcare is absolutely part of um, the path to a healthier society but i also think that's, that's part of the conversation. And we should not lose sight of the fact that if you have a single mom that's taking care of four kids and she's working two jobs, that the focus of that mom may not be on the healthiest food, may not be on making sure the kids are active, may not be on giving them enough or the kind of um, presence and leadership to keep them away from, let's say, more destructive choices in life. And I think of things like drugs or alcohol or or, um, uh, the unfortunate things that people start turning to when life gets tough and they don't have access to things that are more therapeutic. You know, we know enough now that, having a healthy weight, eating a healthy diet, being physically active for a minimum of 30 minutes a day, those things, having good sleep hygiene, having meaningful interpersonal interactions, if you put those things together, the life expectancy increase is dramatic and these are disease-free years. So. I don't know about you, but I have yet to see a health plan that delivers those things to me. You know, my experience with a health plan is that, you know, they give me some financial support so I can go to see my doctor and hopefully that doctor is going to give me some of the information I need in order to make better decisions and in order to stay well. But truly about a third of the disease that we experience um, in our society is related to choices that we make on our own. And I think if we were to see a a much healthier society, we'd be focused on making sure our diabetics had good shoes as opposed to making sure our diabetics had access to you know amputations. Making sure that people who didn't have something to eat could eat rather than taking care of them when they came into the hospital with pneumonia, and oh by the way, they were malnourished. Making sure that people had um, shelter as opposed to taking care of them for the sixth time in the last eight months because of exposure. You know, I think that from a from a societal standpoint, we've got some homework to do in terms of taking care of the masses. And I think part of that conversation is some in some form getting to a national healthcare offering that makes sense, um, that's achievable, that's sustainable, uh, that provides every member of our society basic access to healthcare services, but also revolutionizing the way we look at health and how it is obtained, you know, health for the masses is not found in transplant surgery even though transplant surgery is a wonderful and miraculous thing for the people that it affects. But you can affect far more people through healthy diet and healthy exercise and smoking cessation and moderate moderation of alcohol consumption than you can with a very expensive, high-tech uh, medical
0: intervention. No, it's a critically important insight, Tom. And- It's one that doesn't get enough uh, of a discussion, especially at the national level. You know, we talk often about the payment model, but what happens to our communities then? You know, that we still have these structural inequalities. And actually our campaign, one of the first proposals we put out was um, a a preventative proposal that actually I adopted it from Bobby Kennedy when he ran for for president in 1968. But to your point, uh, he called for community health centers across the country. That would be federally funded but locally staffed and would provide folks with nutrition plans, exercise programs, free pre-K education, after-school programs, and just create ways to develop and sustain communities of healthy living. And the empirical evidence supports what you just said, how if you have healthier communities, then the healthcare system as a whole benefits from that.
1: You know, I would go one step further and say that the conversation about healthcare diminishes importance dramatically when society decides to take their health very seriously. You know, how many visits to the doctor could be avoided by simply taking a 30 minute walk every day. I mean, I think those are the those are kind of the nuts and bolts questions that that um, that we should all be asking ourselves.
0: Absolutely. And I hope this pandemic gives us time to pause and reflect and derive new solutions that uh, are fixing those issues. Um, as a kind of final question for you, um, I'd imagine after we get through this that there's going to be a, uh, a real um, kind of almost like a PTSD with groups and society as a whole will kind of shift the way we interact at scale and congregate with one another Do you have any thoughts on what this pandemic will do to our society and the way that we'll interact with one another?
1: Well, you know, Tom, one of the things I would be very cautious about is thinking in terms of an after this pandemic. It is quite possible that while this pandemic seemed to come on very suddenly it may not go away very quickly and it's very possible that we are going to have to as a society learn how to live in a world with COVID much in the same way that we learned how to live in a world with MRSA. What I mean by that is that in order to get to a place where coronavirus stops spreading around in a community spontaneously. Either we have to have a treatment, which we do not have right now. There's nothing that has been proven to be effective to treat coronavirus or COVID in particular. Or we have to have half, about 50 percent of the population immune. One of the problems with staying away from one another is that We protect people from being exposed. Now the good news is that people who don't get exposed don't get sick. The bad news is we think that people who are not exposed are also not immune. So until we get to a place where about half of the country is immune, it is very likely that coronavirus is going to continue, hopefully at a low level, be part of our world. So, I think it's important for us to prepare for that reality. I think it's important for businesses, for restaurants, for hospitals, for schools, to start asking themselves the hard question, how are we going to function and deliver our services and survive as an economy with COVID as part of that um, as part of that society. What would what would it look like to mitigate the spread of this potentially lethal virus for a church to open up? And I think that those are the hard questions that we're gonna have to face in the months to come. I don't think that our country is going to have the appetite to stay closed forever, and certainly not forever, but for much longer. And and I, I just want to say, even though I'm a healthcare provider, I can definitely see the healthcare ramifications of coronavirus, and I'm the last person that wants to see it spread. But the financial uh, the financial impact that our society is experiencing right now should not be ignored. It is incredibly important for us to get our um, financial wheels turning again. There are real people who are having real problems um, that are not directly coronavirus related, but absolutely indirectly by virtue of the fact that they've had to shutter their restaurant doors or whatever the business might be, movie theater doors. Um, Certainly, we think of coronavirus in terms of how many people got sick and how many people died. But the other number is going to be how many people, you know, defaulted on a mortgage or how many people weren't able to pay their student loan check, how many people aren't able to afford groceries, you know, how many people are defaulting on a, a car loan. Um, I think that those are also incredibly important issues that we as a society have to balance when we look at the health implications of coronavirus. So my hope is that we can get to a place where we don't have to make the choice between, you know, coronavirus um, illness and financial uh, ruin. And hopefully we can allow our businesses to come back to life in a way that makes sense and still protect our population from the ill effects of coronavirus. Um, but I think that, you know, community leaders really need to give some hard thought right now about what's June going to look like, what's July going to look like, what's August and September going to look like when schools are supposed to open up again. Um, I don't think we're going to have a vaccine that soon. and unless somebody can come up with a really good treatment, we probably aren't going to have a treatment either. Of course, who knows what two months will hold. Um, but I think that those are some of the things that I think about when I think about this this question of what's life going to be like after coronavirus.
0: I don't think I could have said it any better myself, Tom. It's, um, it's an approach and a mindset that I hope our public servants adopt that's holistic and forward-looking. And I do think it's a good indication that Governor Wolf actually just announced this afternoon that he would be working with governors of six other states, including Governor Cuomo in New York, to develop a plan for what that will look like in terms of reopening the economy and on an incremental and very deliberate basis. Um, so hopefully they will heed your advice and, and go about this the right way. But um, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your, your story and your insights with us. Uh, You're really have a a pulse on exactly what not only happened to get us to this position, but what needs to be done going forward. So Tom, thanks for taking the time to chat with me.
1: It was my pleasure. And I wish you uh, all all the luck and please, I hope you and your family stay safe.
0: Thank you. You too.